0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Battleground 44 with me Saul David. Today I'm talking to historian and broadcaster James Holland about the Battle of Anzio which opened 80 years ago this month. James is the author of many critically acclaimed and best-selling books about World War II including most recently Brothers in Arms, The Savage Storm and the forthcoming Casino 44 about the Italian campaign of that year. He also co-hosts with Al Murray our sister podcast we have ways James welcome to the podcast
1: ah oh, well, it's always a, always a pleasure to see you as you know now, before we talk about the Anzio
0: landings proper, can you give me a quick resume of where the Allies have got to in Italy by the end of 1943?
1: Yeah, so they they invade. Um, the first invasion is by Eighth Army of just a two divisions going across the Straits of Messina, which are, you know, sort of tiny little, you know, it's the old Scylla and Charybdis bit from, from Homeric fame. Um, it's the tiny little channel that, that separates Sicily from the kind of toenail of the toe of the boot of Italy. Uh, and they get across there but of course it's very mountainous there and they're not making very quick progress and the main event is is the um is operation avalanche which comes 6 days later on the 9th of september and this is general mark clark's us fifth army but actually it's as many british as it is american troops landing on the 9th of september and actually it's it's a pretty high risk op- operation um, much greater strength of german forces in that area than they'd ever faced in sicily for example but they managed to prevail and, and push on. And, and the main objectives for Italy are to, are to once and for all get Italy out of the war. That happens, you know, as they're in, in, invading, because the armistice is actually signed on the afternoon of the 3rd of September. The other one is to draw off German troops from particularly Operation Overlord, which at this point is planned for May 1944. And for those who don't know, Operation Overlord is what becomes known as D-Day. This is a trust, cross-channel invasion of Normandy from, Fran- uh, from, from Britain in, in the summer of 1944. But but also from the Eastern Front as well, to help our, our, our Soviet allies. Um, and then the third main reason, and this is arguably the biggest reason of all, but it's also tied into Operation Overlord, is to capture this airfield complex around Foggia, which is around kind of two-fifths of the way up the leg of Italy, or third of the way up the leg of Italy on the Adriatic side. It's one of the very, very rare flat bits of ground in Italy. And there's a potential to put in a lot of heavy bombers, 4 engine bombers. And this is so that you can further sort of tighten the, the strategic air noose around Germany. But it's also completely tied up with Overlord as well, because there is, this, um, there is this acceptance that Operation Overlord can only happen if you have control of the airspace over northwest Europe. It's not good enough to just have air superiority over over the, the bridgehead of the planned invasion in, in Normandy. It's got to be over a whole sweep. And the reason for this is because the moment you land in Normandy, the cat's out of the bag and the Germans are going to know that this is your main event and then the race is on to see who can build up the decisive amounts of men and material into that bridgehead first. Will it be the Allies coming across the sea from, from from England, or will it be the Germans who are already on the continent? So you need to slow up the Germans' ability to reinforce Normandy, and you do that by destroying bridges and marshalling yards and all the rest of it. But you can only do that by le- very, very low-level bombing, and you can only do that successfully if you've got control of the airspace, because if you've got focke and Messerschmitts hovering above you, that's not going to happen. So... Getting that control of the airspace is absolutely vital. The problem is, in the autumn of 1943, they haven't got anywhere close to getting control of the airspace over Northwest Europe. And so they're thinking, OK, well, maybe the bomber forces we've got and the, and the air forces we've got in England aren't going to be enough, which is why we also need to attack from the, the southern part of the Reich from Italy. And that's because a lot of the aircraft industry is in southern Germany. It's in Bavaria and Austria and so on so it's much easier to get to those factories in Wiener neustadt and regensburg and and you know elsewhere from italy than it is from from england so that is a really really important and prime reason for going into italy and actually three of those th- those three objectives are all reached by Weirdly, the 27th of September. So you might think, well, what's the point of carrying on? Well, the reason for carrying on is twofold. First, because there's a huge psychological impact of getting Rome, which is a major capital with all its history and all the rest of it, and obviously the capital of of what had been fascist Italy. But the second reason is, having got Foggia, you then need a cushion above it. There's no point getting Foggia and investing vast amounts of bombers, men, material tents, rations, fuel... Bombs, all the rest of it, all that goes with maintaining a major bomber force in the field. If you're then going to lose it to a counterattack by the Germans, and it is accepted by the Allied command in Italy and indeed the Combined Chiefs of Staff that that needs to be at least that cushion, that buffer needs to be at least 50 miles north of Rome. Now, originally, the Germans were going to retreat right back to the R- the Pisa-Rimini line. That was what Hitler was planning, and that was what what Rommel, who was in charge of German forces north of Italy at the time, was was proposing, and that was all accepted. But but. Then Hitler, as he so often does, changed his mind and decided, no, he was going to fight for every single yard. And so this huge sort of slogging match developed in the mud, rain and misery of of the Italian winter, because of course, you know, Italy was invaded in the summer of 1943, um, you know, early autumn of 1943 when it was still scorchio and the sun was bearing down and the Mediterranean was wine dark and twinkly and, you know, the the olive groves are in full fruit. But basically from October onwards, it just rained nonstop. I mean, literally it rained 50% of every minute till the end of December. It rained and... You know, the roads in Italy are designed for, you know, mills and carts and the occasion at Fiat Topolino. They're not designed for 3,000 vehicles of of an infantry division in the Allied armies. And so it just turns into a quagmire. And of course, there's lots and lots of mountains. Um, And where you have mountains, you have rivers. And they're cutting against the grain of their advance. And, And it just turns into this absolute sort of awful kind of slugfest, which sees the Allies drawn up against first the Winter Line, the Bernhard Line, which is the first sort of really strong double-lock defensive system that runs from one side of the leg of Italy to the other, about 80 miles south of Rome. And then they get through that at some considerable cost, it has to be said, by the end of, well, by sort of middle of December 1943. And then they're faced with the second of this double-lock system, which is known as the Gustav Line. And this is the one that runs through the massive of Monte Cassino perched on the top of, uh, which is, is the abbey, the famous abbey of Monte Cassino. So that's where we're at at the beginning of January.
0: Yeah, and we heard some, um, you know, some great graphic stuff from Matthew Parker, who uh, wrote a book many years ago. Uh, I realised yes, when I was chatting to him, James, more than twenty years ago. Excuse me, more than twenty years ago. Uh, and during the course of that book, and I know you, you've done a lot of this stuff yourself, he interviewed five hundred participants. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary from all the many uh, nationalities involved in that story. But we're today we're, we're we're looking at the other half of the story, I suppose as you would call it. Uh, And those are, of course, the Anzio landings. Operation Shingle, which began 80 years ago this week. I mean, I think from the way you've set out the story, the listeners can guess what the overall objectives were. But can you just kind of lay out for us how Operation Shingle came about, who was really uh, responsible for it, and what were its strategic objectives?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what happens to Shingle is sort of emblematic of the entire italian campaign really so so from a defender's point of view the advantages of italy are huge amount of mountains defender's dream lots of rivers so you can blow up all the bridges very poor road network lots of high ground from which you can put observers that can direct your artillery fire so anyone moving on the roads below is going to be zeroed and, and kind of taken out so until you've cleared those peaks with the observers on top you're not going to get forward so it's incredibly strong position defensively the weakness of it is the narrowness of the peninsula um, uh, which lends itself to outflanking. And because the Allies are an amphibious force, an amphibious power, I mean, everything they do, whether it be the, the Pacific or you know cross-channel invasion of Normandy, is an amphibious operation. And so the obvious thing to do in Italy, to break the deadlock there, is to do an amphibious operation. The problem is, is despite the huge resources of the Allies, they still don't have enough shipping. Shipping is the key to understanding, or lack of it is the key to understanding the Italian campaign. and. By the beginning of 1944, the demands on the Allies globally is absolutely enormous. So you've got an accelerated campaign in the in the Pacific, which the, which the Americans have decided they're going to do and will take absolutely no truck of anyone suggesting otherwise. You know, But all those operations, whether they be U.S. Army operations or whether they be U.S. Marine Corps, Navy operations, they all require shipping. Then you've got operations in Burma. Um, and Northeast India, which, you know, planned also for outflanking operations into Burma. Um, they actually don't come to anything at this particular point, but that's also planned. Then you've got supplying the Chinese, the Chiang kai sheks nationalists in China. Um, then you've got supplying the Soviet Union, all of which has to come pretty much from sh- by ship. Then you've got preparations for Operation Overlord, which is going to be the single biggest amphibious op- a- operation in the history of the world. So there's huge demands of shipping. And there just isn't much left over for Italy, which is an important campaign. But if you're looking at the kind of sort of pecking order of strategic priorities, it's kind of near the bottom of the tree rather at the top. So it's, yeah, there's lots of good reasons for going into Italy. And there's lots of good reasons for being in Italy, but we can only do so much. And this is one of the dilemmas that the Allies have is that they know they're on top, that they're going to win the war eventually. And there is a kind of sort of impatience. Everyone wants to sort of get on with it and be home by Christmas kind of thing. But you can only do what you can do with the resources you've got. And they never quite have enough to do what they want to do on any particular given day. They're always kind of sort of, you know, their desire is six months ahead of material reality, I suppose. And shingle is an absolute classic operation. So the idea is, okay, yeah, let's let's make the most of this advantage of the narrowest of the, of the leg. Let's do an amphibious operation. Maybe that, if we do a strong operations south of Rome on the flat area, what used to be the Pontine Marshes, which is now sort of reclaimed land in, in the kind of Mussolini fascist era around the ports of, of Anzio and Netuno, which are sort of twin little towns, on a little spur that sticks out into the sea. Maybe we can get in there and that will unlock the whole German defence system. Maybe they'll realise they're threatened to their rear. They'll pull back from the what what seems to be a very, very tough position along the Gustav line, this one that goes through the Monte Cassino massive. That will unlock that and then we'll hasten our, our 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 way into Rome. The problem is it's mounted very quickly because there's huge amounts of shenanigans going on from when it's first mentioned in the kind of latter end of 1943, there's sort of big chat about it. But there's then huge tussles over over the shipping, the available shipping. And there's different types of shipping. And the most crucial bits of shipping you need in an amphibious operation is a landing ship. And there's all these, you know, incredibly complicated acronyms, sort of LSIs, LCAs, LCVPs, all this kind of stuff. You don't, One doesn't need to kind of worry too much about this. But the key thing is the LST, the Landing Ship Tank, or LSI, Landing Ship Infantry, these are big beasts. I mean, they're often kind of longer than a destroyer. So they're kind of like 120 metres long, 120 yards long. They've got a sort of in, enclosed hull. They can take huge amounts of kit. But they have an incredibly shallow draft, and they can be landed on a beach. And then, you know with the very, very small tides you have in the Mediterranean, they can be then taken off again or, or the alternative, you can put out a little sort of temporary floating pontoon that goes straight, straight to the kind of opening mouth of this landing ship. And the trouble is, they don't have enough. and And even the ones that they do have they have to be returned to go to the UK in preparation for Operation Overlord, which at this point is, is being pushed just been pushed back to June. But they're trying to achieve too much with too little shipping. And that's the problem. There's no shortage of manpower. There's actually no shortage of ordnance and artillery and all the rest of it. it it's purely how do you supply this force once it's in? And Shingle just gets caught in a trap of... Being too much not to, you know, there's enough to kind of make it worth the punt, but there's not enough to guarantee kind of success in the aims of what it's trying to do. And and I want to be absolutely clear about this. This is nothing to do with General Alexander, who is the commander, or General Clark, who is the Fifth Army commander, whose Sixth Corps is the one that that gets involved in Chingle. This is higher up the chain. These are decisions that are being made by the combined chiefs of staff in cahoots with prime minister, British prime minister, Winston Churchill, and the president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Okay,
0: you mentioned Sixth Corps. Uh, The commanding general is Major General John P. Lucas. Uh, Tell me a little bit about Lucas. Uh, We'll come on to uh, his denouement, I'm sure, shortly. But why was he specifically given such a crucial role?
1: yeah so lucas is quite interesting because he's he's a sort of a, he's in his sort of mid 50s but he but he looks quite a lot older he's sort of gray haired he's got little round glasses a little sort of white mustache um so he looks like a sort of wise old man like a sort of you know an academic literature professor or something he's been he's been in the mediterranean quite a long time he he, he goes over as um to sort of keep an eye on patton when patton is is appointed seventh army commander for operation husky which is the invasion of sicily and he's um he's on Patton's staff as as Patton's sort of observer, kind of military advisor, kind of right hand man, kind of sort of foil, all those sort of things rolled up into one. It's a kind of slightly slightly vague role, but 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 puts him right at the centre of things. And then he's not scheduled to be involved in the Italian campaign at all. But General Dawley, who is the Sixth Army commander for Operation Avalanche, the invasion at, at Salerno, really doesn't cut it. And this is one of the problems that the Americans have is is that. You know, they're only going into battle against against German and Italian forces at that point in November 1942, on land. And there's then been the Tunisia campaign, which ends in May. Then there's a Sicilian campaign. Then there's the Italian campaign. And, you know, it's by the time you get to September 1943, it's only 10 months since they first gone into action against the Germans. And there's a huge difference between a general who looks great on paper and has done really well in planning and training back home at kind of, you know, Louisiana maneuvers or something and the harsh reality of battle and and all the demands that frontline combat bring to you the kind of quick decision making the you know the need for imperturbability the kind of you know the huge decisions that have to be made which could affect the lives of many young men etc etc you know these are these are weighty weighty jobs and dawley you know he looks great on paper but but actually when it comes to operation avalanche he's found wanting you know he's just not up to it so Clark gets rid of him pretty quickly and the next off the peg is is kind of is John Lucas, who comes in and does a really really good job. You know, he's 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 um you know he's an interesting man. He's he's got a sort of very clear kind of operational understanding, and this is the kind of you know the logistics, nuts and bolts of war. He's got a, a clear kind of picture of the over, overall sort of strategic situation and, and aims, and tactically he's he's pretty astute. I mean, he's not the most charismatic, he's not the most dynamic, but he, but he's a very solid, thoughtful, humane, intelligent, considered corps commander. I mean, there there was nothing particularly wrong with him. You wouldn't say he's outstanding, but you wouldn't say he's particularly wrong either. And and he is considered to be a very sort of safe pair of hands who's going to be not afraid to use his judgment and his initiative for an operation which is potentially very thorny. And the truth of the matter is there's only two options, really, for Clark. He can either send in US 2 Corps or he can send in the British 10 Corps, uh, but he doesn't want to do that because they're Brits, and there's a sort of slight kind of, there's a sort of mild sort of lost in translation, sort of cultural translation that goes on. You know, for something that's as potentially thorny and issue, you know, for, um, um, uh, as and dislocated as something like the Anzio operation. You know, you probably want want your own men that you you know a bit better. Even though having said that, in Sixth Corps there is a British division, of course, uh, which is the, the the first infantry division. And the alternative is Jeffrey Keyes, who is in 2 corps And two-core are already kind of engaged on the on the Gustav line or approaching the Gustav line at, at, at the time of the shingle invasion. So there's no real other option other than Lucas to go in. But it's not, you know, Clark is not sending him in with any kind of sense of this is all going to go pear-shaped or anything. I mean, the, you know, they're reasonably optimistic. I mean, I think there is a general general belief that this potentially a bit of a long shot, but it might just work. And if it just works, then it's worth, worth the punt. Of course,
0: um, Clark and and everyone else can't have known this at the time, but Lucas obviously wasn't himself entirely convinced it was going to work, given that he writes in his diary shortly before, they will end up putting me ashore with inadequate forces and get me in a serious jam, then who will get the blame? And he also goes on to say, it has a strong odour of Gallipoli and apparently the same amateur still on the coach's bench, which of course is a reference to, as we know, Churchill, who was a great proponent of Anzio. So, did you get that sense that this is just him letting off a little bit of steam, or was he genuinely worried even before it begins?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the problem is of all these op- of all these operations, is the enemy has a vote in this, and you don't, you know, you can't second guess what they're going to do. But but there are two German armies in Italy at this point. There's the 10th Army, which is engaged with the 5th and 8th Army along the along the Gustav Line, which runs the stretch of of Italy about kind of you know 65 70 miles south of Rome. And then there is the Fourteenth Army, which is in the kind of center of of the peninsula, and is there for just the kind of am- amphibious operation that that the Allies might mount, and which the Germans fear they'll mount. Now, you know, no one is quite sure how the Germans are going to respond to this, and 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 there's a lot of wishful thinking, and this is this wishful thinking um happens with Operation Avalanche. Now, as it turns out, Operation Avalanche, they pull it off, you know, frankly against the odds, because at one point you know four infantry divisions are facing kind of six and a bit and they still you know you should you should never be kind of you know attacking an an aggressive operation such as as avalanche with with less than kind of 3 to 1 manpower advantage now they're kind of you know they have the force multiplier in in kind of offshore naval guns and 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 the air forces and stuff but even so it's a really really high risk operation at a time where the Allies have kind of worked out that high risk is not really their modus operandi. That a much more sensible way of doing things is to build up overwhelming strength and then attack. When you know that you, you know, it might take a bit of a tough time, but you can't, you, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to actually lose and lose ground. But the whole Italian campaign is is always done on a on a on a wing and a prayer and wishful thinking because, as, as I was saying earlier on, you know, there's good, re- there's very very good strategic reasons for being in Italy you know, which are inarguable. But there isn't the shipping to guarantee the kind of levels of quick success that the Allies are are hoping for. And so at that point, it's, it's a punt. And, you know, you're more likely to take a punt on a, on a lower priority theatre than you are on your main one. So everything is being front-loaded for Operation Overlord. I've, I, I refer to it as the tyranny of Overlord. You know, the tyranny <laughs> of Overlord being the kind of primary theatre and the primary aim and primary strategic goal operation for the for the Allies against Nazi Germany by this stage of the war dominate every decision that is made in Italy. And, and it's inescapable. And and it's like all these things. It's it's you know in, in a in a cricket match, you know, you are you're, you're running into bowl and you're thinking, God, this guy's gonna go, he might take me to the cleaners. <laughs> but 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 equally as you're batting, you're going, God, I feel really nervous. I hope I don't cock it up. So you know, you're always tending to look at things from your own perspective. And from Lucas's point of view, he's been given a very, very tough roll of the dice. There's, there's no going away I and mean, He knows it. But, you know, it's war. They never have what they want. They never have... I mean, they, you know, when it even comes to D-Day and over Operation Overlord, they, you know, they originally want six beaches, not five. You know, there's Band Beach on the other side of the, of the River Orn, and, you know, they don't get that because they haven't got enough shipping even for Overlord. You know, there's never enough. They always want more. And and I suppose the decisions are such that that Overlord is so important that you have to make tough decisions um, and risky decisions in a a lesser priority theatre. And that is the truth of the situation in, in Italy. And it's very hard to say it was the wrong decision, because what ultimately happens is Rome is finally captured on the 4th of June, 1944, and at that point, that is the biggest land victory that the Allies have in, uh, in in Europe to that point of the war. And and the only reason that Rome is taken is because of the two-pronged attack, the one that's coming from the south and the one, the breakout that eventually happens from Six Corps Bridgehead in, in in Anzio. So it's not really a question of was it the right decision or was it the wrong decision? It was a decision that was made for the best reasons with inadequate forces, on a wing and a prayer and a bit of a hope, but you have to take risk in a time of war. And what's the alternative? The alternative is just getting bogged down on the Gustav line and never getting anywhere.
0: We'll just take a break there. Do join us in part two when we'll be hearing more from James about the Battle of Anzio. Okay, let's move on to the actual landings themselves. 22nd of January, 1944. They th- for, for a while, things go pretty well, don't they? Or at least they do at the beginning. They achieve complete surprise by midnight. 36,000 soldiers, 3,200 vehicles have been put ashore. In some places, the troops have penetrated up to five kilometres inland. But instead of striking further inland... Lucas plays it safe, doesn't he? You know, in line with the, the the quotes I've given from his diary, he is concerned about the counterattacks and he's determined to secure the beachhead, as I suppose he would put it. Churchill writes later, "I had hoped we were hurling a wildcat into the shore, but all we got was a stranded whale. So, why was he so hesitant to move further? And, and was this, in your view, a mistake or not?"
1: No, he he's he's absolutely right. You've got to be very, very careful of overextending. And there's so many uh, cases where you see in the, in the Second World War forces overextending. I mean, not least, you know, Operation Barbarossa in, in the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, not least Rommel repeatedly in North Africa. You reach what's called your culmination point. And this is where you can no longer do what you want to do because your supply lines are so stretched. The problem hanging over them is the, you know, what they've said is, you can have these landing ships for up until a certain date in early February, but you can't have them any longer than that. So everything that's going to be supplied to you will be supplied to you by that time by the, using those landing ships. So whatever you've got to got, want to land on, on you know you want to try and secure the ports of uh, Natuno and Anzia yourself, but they can't take big ships anyway, uh, and they're pretty badly bashed about. But but hopefully you can use those. But in terms of landing ships coming onto the beaches, they're going to be taken away from you at the beginning of February. So whatever you have has to come in then. Now, you're Lucas, and you go swanning off into the Alban Hills, which is sort of, you know, 20 miles to the kind of north north of Anzio, and your supply lines aren't secured, and then there's a counterattack by 14th Army, so an army rather than a, a, a German corps, you're going to be up the creek without a paddle, and that absolutely would have happened. And the fact that even with the kind of limited gains that they make, they then suffer pretty big series of counterattacks throughout February from a very, very concentrated force from the German 14th Army, rather proves the point that that Lucas was absolutely spot on. The the, the fault is wishful thinking from, from Churchill. And Churchill, for all his immense geopolitical understanding, was always very, very guilty, as was Hitler, incidentally, of looking at a map and looking at units and thinking that means fighting force. It's really, really important that anyone understands when you're talking about a division, you're talking about you know, 16,000 men in an infantry division, of which only about 9,000 are your actual fighting force. You've always got to have reserves. You've always got to have left out of battle in case you get annihilated, and you need a card from which to kind of rebuild another unit again. And so actually, when you're talking about a division-strength for infantry attack, you're actually talking about kind of two or 3,000 men out of 16,000. And, and, and that's because of, you know, the logistics and the way it's organized and the way you, way one attacks and stuff. And, there's, and so you never quite have have enough you never have quite as much as you you might think you're going to have and churchill is always guilty of sort of going well this is ridiculous you know there's half a million men in in you know in allied armies in in italy what are they all doing well you, you know the way the allies fight is to have a very very long tail you know 43% of troops are service troops you know guys driving trucks and what have you but in Italy, and particularly in Italy more than anywhere else, it is the infantry that are doing the hard yards. And infantry make up about sort of 14 to 15% of your manpower. So it's a very, very small point of the spear, really, in the big scheme of things. Now the Allies could have restructured themselves and had very, you know, large numbers of infantry divisions and stuff, which were lightly armed and lightly mechanized. But that would also have been completely counterproductive because that's not their way of war, and it wouldn't have worked either. And it would have been much more costly in terms of of lives and all the rest of it. You know, what what everyone's trying to do is win as quickly as possible for as few casualties as possible, and. Churchill, in his you know, in Downing Street or in his war rooms or whatever, is is just actually not best place to make these calls. And and here and, and Churchill, you know, and I'm I'm sort of rather guilty of this myself. You know, you always kind of think, well, I I want to get to you know, this is this is what I'm going to do. Let's just say we're going to do it, and then work out the problems afterwards. You know, because we've made the decision, so therefore you'll have to work through these these difficulties. And and Churchill was really guilty of that. I mean, he does that with you know, the Mulberry Harbours, for example, you know, he famously says, don't argue the matter, the, the, the problems will argue for themselves. But, but let's make sure we do it. So everyone then sort of goes, oh my God, you know, how are we going to do this? And, um, and so it's, it's, it's a sort of dislocation, a disconnect between the harsh realities of combat at the front in Italy in winter and wishful thinking and kind of statistics on a, on a data sheet back in Washington or, or, or back in London. And one has to remember that we are in January 1944, and the winters during the Second World War were absolutely brutal. They were throughout the 1940s. I mean, 1947 was one of the worst winters on record ever um, over Europe. But they were in Italy too, and it was absolutely brutal, this sort of endless rain. It actually kind of sort of brightened up a bit in in January. It wasn't quite so much rain as there had been. But the Allies are kind of fair-weather fighters, really. You know, the way they're constructed with this sort of incredibly kind of sort of mechanised heavy front loaded with mechanization technology aircraft guns firepower so that your numbers of infantry can be kept at kind of sort of 14 percent. that's great in summer when the kind of client you know the skies are clear and you can bring all your your aircraft to bear and when you can and easily maneuver your artillery left right and center with trucks and what have you but it's very, very difficult in winter when there's 10-10s cloud and your air power can't operate and your trucks and your guns and everything are getting stuck in the mud. You know, that that's a problem. And suddenly it's down to those 14% infantry and a whole load of mules. Well, you know. That's not how it was supposed to be. I mean, you know, the Allies are supposed to be these kind of sort of, you know, using mechanization and, and innovation and technology to their advantage. And they're, you know, making the most of their huge global reach. The last thing they want they're expecting is is to be slogging it through Europe with a bunch of mule skinners. I mean, that's ridiculous. But that's that is the pressure of time. You know, and, and it's the pressure of the tyranny of Overlord again coming into bear. But, you know, because the most obvious thing to do is to just keep the pressure on the Gustav line, coming away, you know, fire lots of guns so that there's no chance of the Germans ever getting anywhere. And let's not worry about, about Rome too much. Keep the pressure on, keep the initiative on, but but just hold fire until the weather uh, improves. But but they've decided that they've got to get to Rome. They've got to have this buffer north of Rome and, and because of the air power at uh, Foggia. And that goes again back to the tyranny of Overlord. So. Those decisions are away from Italy. So one cannot blame the army commanders and the the allied army commanders, you know, like Alexander. You can't blame them for the failures in Italy, I don't think.
0: It's interesting talking to Matthew. I mean, he described Anzio as the tail wagging the dog. and
1: Yes, and he's very much a sort of lions led by donkeys kind of approach.
0: He is a little bit. Um, just for the sake of balance, I should point out that, uh, of course, as the listeners will well know, there's a lot of uh, disagreement among historians about Lucas's actions. Uh, Keegan said something quite interesting. He said, had Lucas risked rushing, that's John Keegan, of course, the late John Keegan, had Lucas risked rushing at Rome the first day, his spearheads would probably have, arrived though they would have soon been crushed which is the point you made nevertheless he might have staked out claims well in land his but what he ultimately did said keegan was uh, achieving the worst of both worlds which is exposing his forces to risk without imposing any
1: on the enemy well i think that's well i think that's really harsh i mean i, d- <laughs> I don't agree with that at all i thought you might well because because i mean what happens in the course of february is that the germans Germans chuck everything at it I mean, you know, it is. Yeah. You know, Hitler. Hitler is 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 incensed. He makes it absolutely clear that he's not prepared to kind of put up with this anymore. This 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 carbuncle has to be kind of kicked back into the sea, and they fail. They they, they don't do it. They they chuck vast amounts of men and material into this. It, it it utterly completely fails, albeit to great cost to Sixth Corps. But Sixth Corps prevail. And when Sixth Corps then finally do break out, Fourteenth Army is pretty much destroyed. I mean. And well, that's only kind of four months later.
0: Yeah, well, we'll come on to that in a minute. Let, let's um, give us a little bit of a sense of you already have, but a, a tiny little bit more detail on the German attempts to reduce the beachhead. How close do they actually come to throwing everyone into the sea?
1: Uh, I don't think they get that close. Uh, I mean, there's some pretty furious fighting. So, so what happens is is, is British First Division gets all the way up to Campiglione, um Station, which is quite a long way. To the north, and, and they take up this little place called called known as the factory. It's actually a kind of Mussolini new town called Aprilia, and they get all the way up there. Then the Germans start arriving in kind of numbers, and and they counterattack pretty quickly. At the same time, the Americans, the U.S. Army Rangers, which have a, the Ranger Force, which has come in, in in some strength, in kind of three battalions, I, I remember rightly, um, they attack towards Cisterna, which is kind of sort of um, due kind of east of of Anzio Natuno. And they get trapped. They, they, You know, the Germans are waiting for them. They basically, the whole lot, get put in a bag. I mean, hardly any get out. It's an absolute catastrophe for the Ranger Force. But the Germans then sort of counterattack again, and it's pretty furious fighting. And then they, and, and it all gets pretty hairy. But, but again, the British and the Americans manage to hold them. And then there's the big concerted effort, which is Operation Fishfang, uh, which is launched in the kind of third week of February. And that is pretty, pretty hairy, it has to be said. And it's a combination of the 45th Thunderbirds, um, and the British First Division, which is badly decimated. I mean, First Division is really and you know, when one is thinking about the horrors of Anzio and all these sort of Roger Walters and his father and all that kind of stuff, th- th- this is all this period. And it's 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 a very difficult bit of terrain. You've got this sort of weird, you know, it's lots of it's completely flat, completely bare. There's absolutely nothing there. I mean, a known as the factory, looks like a factory, it is actually a you know, this embryonic small town and sort of new town, but it's but it's it's very kind of underpopulated. Just north of this straight road, there is this, this area known as the Wadis, which is like this sort of weird kind of feature of little sort of low-level sort of buffs, bluffs and, and and cliffs and little sort of dried-up rivers and things, which is why it's known as a waddy, which is a sort of you know name for a North African dried riverbed, riverbed. And it's pretty sort of vicious fighting. But the Allies do prevail, and and they prevail because of the doggedness of the infantry that sort of digs in. And Superior artillery to to anything that the Germans have, but the Germans throw a huge amount at it, and you know it's very easy to be damning about about Anzio, but what you can't fault is is the stoic defence of of Six Corps, and what you also can't you can't really deny is is that the German counteroffensive in which a huge number of kind of eggs are put into one basket and hurled at it is a failure. I mean, it just is. You know, it's a disaster for the Germans. With the full weight of 14th Army there, they should have been able to kick one corps back into the sea, and they don't.
0: Okay, we've got the replacement of Lucas. I mean, I have kind of hinted at it at the beginning. Uh, Lucas is replaced by Lucian Truscott um, on Mark Clark's orders. Although, no doubt, pressure was coming from higher above. I think Alexander visits the beachhead, doesn't he? And he's not terribly impressed with what he's heard from Lucas.
1: So, good move. Yeah, I, I think it's. I, I you know, it's it's hard on Lucas, but you know, this is war, and and, and you know, the stakes are incredibly high, and th- this is not about you know upsetting the feelings of senior commanders. This is about making the right decision and you know lucas has been in it since september he's been in frontline action pretty much the whole time in very very difficult conditions and you know fighter pilots get a six-month tour in the mediterranean you know i i think one needs to kind of see it much more in that <laughs> sort of light really I, I don't think it's a you know he is tired he is exhausted he's been living underground in in Netuno for kind of six weeks you know what for a month or something and He's just a bit run out of ideas and it just needs a kind of fresh take. And, and, and also, I think it's really, once your senior command sort of starts sort of going, oh, is this the right person? You know, not sure he's quite up to it. You know, John's looking a bit tired, you know, mm. sort of dark lines under the eyes and all the rest of it. Once you start having doubts about your subordinate commanders, they've got to go. You know, it's just, it's just so it's, it's hard, but probably fair. You know, and Truscott is a you know he's a he's a little ball of energy and a little ball of fire and he, and he's a different you know it's interesting you look at Truscott he always has this white neckerchief he has cavalry breeches and and boots he always wears his sort of you know his his helmet and sunglasses and stuff and, and he wears a leather kind of flight jacket you know a lot of these American commanders really go for their look you know they like it's a very kind of very kind of studied and and there's a certain sort of chutzpah about about Truscott I mean Truscott is is an exceptional combat commander. Um, he's smart bright intel- you know dynamic and if you were to kind of compare him to lucas on a sort of charisma level you know truscott beats him hands down it's not to say that lucas is bad it's just it's probably time for a change i'd have a problem with the sacking of lucas at all
0: yeah you say sort of on, in terms of looks but obviously in terms of energy and spirit and belief probably more than anything else. Uh, James, that Truscott probably was the right guy to to bring in at this stage. He had been commanding the third division, so you know he's not he's he's already in the beachhead. Um, yep, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, let's move on to the breakout. Twenty um, third of May, Truscott's troops. I mean, it's a phenomenal number. Now swelled uh, to one hundred fifty thousand. Although, as you quite rightly point out, only a fraction of that are actually going to be fighting on the front line. They break out of Anzio in conjunction with Operation Diadem, which is this joint operation advancing from the Gustav Line. By which point, of course, again, as we've heard from uh, Matthew, the ground has dried. They built up enormous firepower at uh, Monte Cassino. And and so it's almost inevitable that this operation is going to succeed. But what actually is Truscott hoping to achieve that? I mean, what are his operational uh, objectives?
1: Well, so 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 the plan is that what Alexander has done, who's the Allied Army Group Commando in, in Italy, he's brought the bulk of 8th Army and the US 5th Army together side by side. So 5th Army is on the left of, with US 2 Corps. And and the French Expeditionary Corps. The French have been in there since the previous autumn as well. And then in the center, along the main line of attack, the main kind of access of advance, or planned access of advance, and this is the key key bit about this, is gonna be the British Eighth Army, which now includes include, includes the Second Polish Corps, for example, that's come all the way over from Anyway, that's a different story, but won't get into that now. So the plan is that that Eighth that Army will will take the lead, and that the French and US 2 Corps on their left hand flank will play a kind of subsidiary role, kind of sort of mopping up through the mountains to the, that sort of between the Liri Valley, which is sort of five six miles wide, um, uh, and leads all the way up to Rome using the kind of Via Casalina Highway Six as its main sort of artery up there, um, and the mountains on on the left hand flank and the sea. And it is expected the Eighth Army will take the lead on this, and so what that means is is that the German Tenth Army will be pushed to the kind of to the south towards the coast, and at a certain point, when when it looks like the the bulk of them are falling back from the Gustav Line and the and the immediate line behind that, the, the Sanger Line or the Hitler Line, as it's known, Six Corps will break out and cut across to Valmontoni, which is its little town, kind of you know twenty five miles south of Rome lying on the Via Casalina, but with mountains behind it. So in other words, hopefully the bulk of 10th Army will get trapped in this pocket where it's sort of sandwiched between 6th Corps and 8th Army and the French and US 2 Corps on their left and the mountains on the right. And and indeed, that does happen. You know, the breakout does happen as planned. What doesn't happen as planned is that the French and US 2 Corps take a massive lead on 8th Army. The Late Army is sort of languishing in the Liri Valley, while the French and the Americans on their left-hand flank have taken great strides. So the kind of circling of the kind of capturing bulk of 10th Army in this pocket doesn't happen. In fact, not a single German soldier from 10th Army retreats down the Via Casalina. Instead, they go further to the northeast. So this rather negates the whole point of driving to Valmontoni because you're not going to stop 10th Army from retreating by going to Valmontoni. All you're going to do is just break out of the, the offensive and put greater pressure on the German 14th Army, at which point is now lined up in the Auburn Hills, overlooking this drive towards Valmontoni. So 6th Corps is going to break out of Anzio in a kind of sort of easterly direction. On their left-hand flank, as they're driving east, in the hills, overlooking them, is now the bulk of the 14th Army, which is pulled back from the Anzio Bridgehead and is holding the high ground. And that's a big problem if you're Sixth Corps. So what Mark Clark does is brings all his troops in a line and brings Two Corps alongside Sixth Corps and turns on and faces 14th Army head on. And that happens in the third week of May, 1944.
0: Exactly. And and, and this, of course, is the controversial moment, isn't it? I mean, there are two operations originally planned, uh, authorised by Clark. One of them you've already outlined. The other one to effectively go for Rome. And as you've explained, he goes for the latter. So... He's originally launched what would have been or what is Operation Buffalo. But as they're getting quite close to Valmontoni, I mean, you've already pointed out that most of the Germans aren't coming up that highway.
1: No, 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 it's not most of them. None of them. <laughs> not a single German soldier is retreating. I way. mean, what's
0: fascinating about all of this is that Truscott, who, who, of course, is leading the breakout from Anzio, is horrified by Clark's decision. And it is, it, it's still slightly mystifying to me, given the way you've explained it now, that he was still... So outspoken both at the time and later uh, about Clark's decision. He he didn't agree with it. He felt it was a mistake and he felt that it had cost the Sixth Corps the opportunity to take. A lot of uh, the 14th army which of course eventually not just the 14th but also the 10th I I know you've made the point that the 10th is, is actually withdrawing even further to the west
1: to the east to the east, to the east to the yeah. but
0: there's still the issue of what's going to happen with 14th army which of course ultimately does withdraw back through Rome and of course a yeah chunks of it get away. It takes a lot of casualties, too. So does sixth Corps and two Corps in trying to dislodge it. So why do you think Truscott was so outspoken in his criticism of Clark?
1: Because the bulk of his corps was forced to go up uphill, attack uphill, which is never a kind of sort of particularly ideal situation. And what he is expecting to do is go on the sub. so basically what you have is you have the the uh, Lapini Mountains. To the kind of to the south. Then you've got the Auburn Hills, then you've got Rome. And you've got this valley which extends out from the Anzio Bridgehead all the way to sort of Valmontoni. So what, what Trusco wants to do is hurry to Valmontoni and put the bulk up through Valmontoni, which then progresses, the, the via Casalina, the Highway 6, then runs through a gap in the hills to the kind of um east of Rome. And so you avoid then going up fighting up through the hills. And he wants to use the Via Casalina as the main artery to try and fold in behind the 14th army. So it's it's not that he's not going to Valmontoni that's the issue for Truscott. It's that he doesn't think the broad front turning and fighting up through the Auburn Hills is the most sensible way to do things. Well, was he right? I mean... <laughs> well, I, I don't think he was because because what happens, we, where he's getting cross... Is because they do this and they go up and they hit a brick wall of the 14th Army, which is now behind what is known as the Caesar Line, which is another defensive position. And so he's just thinking, "Oh, great, okay." So we've just, we, you know, we're, we're making lives much harder for ourselves than we need to. You know, we, we we should just be bulking up through through the Via Casalina. As it turns out, von Mackinson, who is a 14th Army commander, has allowed a huge gap um, in his line, and this is exploited by the 36th. Um, Texan division who discover as they move up that actually there is this hole and they can get in around the back and that causes the whole line to the whole thing to collapse. But up until that moment, Trusca is just thinking we've got the fight of our lives on our hands when it could have been easier if we'd gone up via Casalina. Was he right? I'm not sure because actually that route up, even to this day, when you now go on an autostrada rather on the actual old school via Casalina, is still pretty narrow and it was pretty well defended by the Germans who still, you know, that road snakes through a kind of sort of l- bit of lower land, like a sort of, uh, it's like a, effectively like a pass, but you still have German guns on the high ground looking down on them. And so instead of going across one flank, you're effectively got two flanks because the road, you're, you're going due east, so then you've got to kind of go northwest and you're overlooked by hills the whole time that you're making that route. So that's what that's all about. But it's been misinterpreted as, Clark wanted the glory of getting to Rome quickly and, you know, smashing 14th Army. So he's, you know, he he didn't, um, you know, he refused to, to destroy 10th Army as instructed by Alexander that, you know, that is just simply not true and not the case.
0: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the, the way you've set it out is that, that it it seems like a sort of a fairly logical operational decision by Clark. But of course, there was the alternative, which you, which you've also described, which, which Trust got advised. And we'll never know whether that would have been a, a better alternative. But there is also no question, as we know from what he's, he wrote about at the time and has written about since. That he did want the honor of capturing Rome first, I and mean, he was incredibly prescriptive about not allowing any Brits in anywhere near the capital city. No, no, no. Okay, again,
1: again, that needs qualification as well. It's not that he's not allowing Brits in. He's not allowing Brits of, of Eighth Army, and he's been yeah. promised this. And this is this is incredibly important for it is important for Clark, the man, but it's also important for for Fifth Army, which is a US Fifth Army, and it is very important for the ongoing campaign in Italy. Clark, you know, they're living in a media age. Clark knows that that how it is reported back in the states, particularly with Overlord just hovering around the corner, and and with plans for Anvil, which then becomes Dragoon, i.e., the invasion of southern France, hovering Mm -hmm. in the background, and decisions being made over kind of withdraw potentially withdrawing troops from Italy and not pursuing the Italian campaign till its fullest, are all hovering in the background. And he also knows that it is the Americans, not the British, who are most determined to cut back on the Italian campaign, and he thinks that's a mistake. So it is incredibly important from a kind of PR point of view that the Italian campaign is in the foremost of public opinion and striking a chord back in the United States. And the way for that to happen is for the US Fifth Army to take Rome, as had been pledged by Alexander beforehand. So that is what this is all about. What you see is you see you see Clark getting in a bit of a twist before Diadem is launched, because Oliver Leese, who is the commander of Eighth Army, is slightly winding him up about it. Sort of going well. Obviously, if I, my troops get there first, we'll take Rome. Uh, and you can see Clark working himself up into a complete lather about this. Uh, and and there is his own vanity and ambition. I mean, you know, you can't deny that. But but you know, very 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 few senior generals who are not ambitious. I mean, Alexander possibly won, but pretty much every other one is, <laughs> and um, <laughs> including Truscott and Lucas and Patton and everybody else. But as Fifth Army takes the lead on the drive towards Rome, and Eighth Army gets stuck in the Leary Valley, you see Clark's apprehension and, and anxiety about this rescind very, very quickly. He is very, very happy for British troops of Fifth Army, and that includes, you know, Ten Court to be part of the, of his forces in Rome. He just doesn't want Eighth Army ones in there, and that's because there are army boundaries, and it has been agreed beforehand that Fifth Army will be in Rome, not not eight me, And that's completely fair enough.
0: Yeah. And it's also because he doesn't want to share any of the glory. But we should also acknowledge that an awful lot of people at the time don't share the, the you know the argument you've you've just put. I, I mentioned Trust Scott. I mean, I could give you many, many other quotes, but I'm just gonna give you one because it is quite graphic and it is quite fun. And this is this is Alan
1: Wicker. Uh, he, oh, yeah, uh yeah, was, he's was, th- uh, he's talking absolutely out his ass on this. I mean, really, 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 really is. I met Alan Wicker and I talked to him about it. I mean, uh, it, it is. This comes from his post-war memoir, which he wrote in maybe 2003, something like this. After which, every bit of slagging off of, of Clark has been written. Really... the absolute key bit of Clark is about Alexander losing his temper, and this is where it all comes from. Um, and, and when when Alexander heard that that Clark hadn't gone to all out to Valmontoni, he was absolutely furious. And this comes from a book by Raleigh Trevelyan, who was a junior officer. Um, a subaltern in the Anzio bridgehead um, at the time, and became a historian subsequently after the war. And it is an, um, from a based on an interview he did with Harold Macmillan in 1966, so some you know more than 20 years after the event. And it is not footnoted in his book, so he just says you know Macmillan says this, but it's not actually noted. So I got in touch with Raleigh Trevelyan and I said, you know, you say this about about McMillan, but you haven't actually footnoted it. You know, when, when did it happen? He said, oh, that's really weird that I didn't do that. That's bad of me. Um, uh, well, he, well, he said that in an interview that I did with him in the 60s. But if you read Barry McMillan's diaries of the time and John Harding's diaries of the time and Alexander's notes and literary and even Oliver Lease's, who didn't like Clark at all, the only criticism comes from Truscott. There is no contemporary criticism of Clark's decision at all. Not at all. He's
0: effectively disobeyed Alexander's order, hasn't he? And the outcome of that is debatable. I mean, you you, you described how they they had a bit of fortune getting through the Caesar line. Uh, we
1: won't know what, what would have happened if they'd taken the alternative route. Um, he doesn't disobey Alexander's orders. Alexander says... You are going to Valmontoni, aren't you? And, and Clark goes, "Yes, but no German troops are retreating down that route. But I am intending to go to Valmontoni. Yes." And and Alexander goes, "Well, as long as you secure that road and you get get Valmontoni, I'm I'm happy for you to do this turn into Auburn Hills." And he does take Valmontoni. So so he's not disobeying any orders at all. I mean, honestly, it's it's just it's it's a total myth. I mean, this all came uh, this came about not because I've got I'm I'm a kind of sort of fanboy of my, Mark Clark at all. <laughs> this came about because. Many years ago, I drove that route from the Six Corps Breakout. And I, and I looked up at the Auburn Hills and I thought, bloody hell, you know, this is 14th Army up there looking down on my flank. I would not, you know, it's, it's one of the kind of, I mean, you know, it doesn't take a military genius to kind of realise that, that advancing with your flank exposed the whole length of that flank is not a good idea. And, and I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. And I started feeling a bit more sympathetic to, to, to Clark's decision. And I thought, well, it's such a hot potato. Where has this all come from? So I looked at every single contemporary source. And I can, I can promise you I've done more research on this than I think anyone alive or indeed dead in terms of contemporary sources. I mean, people, people just haven't got it. No one's got an answer to this because they always go back to anecdotal accounts by people like Alan Wicker Writing or, or writing about this many years after the event, what one has to understand is that there was a huge amount of dissatisfaction amongst junior subalterns in both armies, but particularly Eighth Army, because of this kind of moniker of being D-Day dodgers and the secondary prior, you know, um, campaign and and the Italian campaign sort of slipping into the shadows. And so they witnessed unbelievably brutal fighting, unbelievable losses, particularly in terms of officers, but but frontline infantry troops were absolutely massacred in italy it was unbelievably brutal and after the war once you're kind of thinking about it and you think about what you've got through you want to point the finger at someone and it's very very easy to point the finger at alexander and at mark clark particularly if you're british and he's a horrible yank and all the rest of it who was preening and ambitious he's preening ambitious and vain and therefore that means he's a badass and and you know we, we can slag him off but as a historian you have to be dispassionate about these things and you have to look at them objectively and you have to weigh up the weight of contemporary evidence not evidence that's been been transmitted orally 40, 50, 60, 70 years after the event. You've got to look at what's, what's going on at the time and you've got to look at the landscape. And it has to be accepted that someone who is languishing behind the Singer line when all this is happening as a junior officer in Eighth Army hasn't got the faintest idea of what is going on up at the Six Corps breakout. And so when they're looking into this later, they're, they're, they're looking at subsequent testimonies and books and all the rest of it. And I can tell you that what Alan Wicker did when he did his his memoir kind of 70 years after the event or 60 years after the event was merely go back all across, across those books. There's a book There's a book called, um, there's another one by John Ellis. There's another book which is incredibly down on Italy. I mean, there was this whole <laughs> tranche of books that came out in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, which was in that kind of the absolute peak of the declineist movement on the Allied war effort. And that is where all this comes from. But but it absolutely needs kicking into touch because there is no factual basis for it whatsoever.
0: No, but you do you you say that the only really serious contemporary evidence that was critical of of Clark is from Truscott, but Truscott is a pretty key player in this story. He's commanding the breakout from Manzio. He is he is someone who you've also acknowledged, were, you know, was a fine combat commander. And it is pretty remarkable. If he writes something as strong as this, there was never any doubt in my mind that had General Clark held loyally to General Alexander's instructions, had he not changed the direction of my attack to the northwest on May 26th, the strategic objectives of Anzio would have been accomplished in full to be first in Rome was a poor compensation for this lost opportunity. That is pretty damning, and it's quite hard, I think, given that he was the guy at the front to overturn that judgment.
1: Yeah, but 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 what is the lost opportunity? The lost opportunity is to surround and completely trash 10th Army. But 10th yeah. Army doesn't go down that route. I, I, you know, I, I don't know how many times I can say this. And potentially the 14th. And potentially the 14th. The 14th uh, that, that... Army is destroyed in this battle. It is it is largely destroyed. Temp, the, the, the aim of Diadem is to destroy 10th Army. 14th Army doesn't come into it. The result of Diadem is badly mauling 10th Army and effectively destroying for a period of about two months 14th Army. You know, he is absolutely massacred. And, and, and I I can't stress enough that not a single soldier from 10th Army retreats down the Via Casalina. Not one. And the, and, and what happens is it, because the mountains run in a kind of south-easterly direction, parallel to the Via Casalina. So you've got the mountains, then you've got the valley, then you've got more mountains. So so the, the Leary Valley is this sort of five-six mile wide stretch, and and the Via Casalina is on the northern side, the the kind of right-hand side of this valley. Then you've got mountains behind those mountains. You've got a valley, and then another valley, and another valley, and they are they are splintering off in a kind of north northerly kind of northeasterly direction, so had you got to Valmontoni, you would have then had to go directly up over the mountains down into the next valley and then up the mountains down into the next valley and the- so, so in other words the mountains are going against the grain of your advance if you're striking eastwards from sixth Corps mm-hmm. once you get to Valmontoni six Corps can only do one thing: they can turn northwards or they could turn south and meet meet eighth army but but they are not going to destroy tenth Army and Truscott is also writing that in his memoir, which is published after the war, not at the time. So we don't have Truscott – I've got a copy of it here. Um, we don't have Truscott's contemporary memoir, um, temporary diaries. What we do have is – and all the contemporary diaries don't mention this. So this is first published in 1954, so it's 10 years after. So it's pretty contemporary. And I'm sure it's based on his his notes and all the rest of it. But But yeah. – it is an absolute rock-solid fact that turning into the Auburn Hills has no bearing on the fate of the German 10th army whatsoever. It could, gone, it could have gone pear-shaped because 6th Corps could have been pushed back off the hills, 14th army could have held the Auburn Hills for a lot longer, they might not have got Rome on the 4th of June. Clark unquestionably gets a lucky break, which is this gap in the line that that 36th mm-hmm. Division, the Texans, are able to exploit. And he might not have had that, but he does. But So the arguments are, should he have gone all out for Valmontoni and then turned up the Via Casalina, or should he have done, adopted the broad-front approach, which he did, does, and, and turn in and face the 14th Army in the Auburn Hills? That is the only question. The whole thing about going to Valmontoni and, and destroying 10th Army doesn't come into play because there's no 10th army to destroy. Okay. It's going to be fascinating when your book comes out because, you know, th- this is, a, I mean, the great thing about us
0: as historians, Jamie, is that we we do have to battle against a lot of received opinion, don't we? Oh my God, don't you ever. And on this issue, it doesn't get much bigger than this. You, you can see that Americans still feel very kind of prickly about Clark. So it is going to be absolutely fascinating.
1: It is fascinating. And it's fascinating how he is still this sort of bogeyman. Um, I mean, as I say, I, you know, I don't, I don't think he's a particularly attractive character. Um, you know, I adore Alexander. I think Alexander, I mean, you know, you know, as a, as a personality, you can't can't fault him, and I think he's a very, very, very good, absolutely top level. High commander. I mean, you know, he gets way more right than he ever gets wrong. You know, he's a consummate diplomat. He sees the big picture. He's effortlessly charming. You know, there's something incredibly likable, whichever way you look at it. You know, he's completely devoid of any personal ambition at all. You know, his ambition is to do do his duty and, and, and live his life as an honorable, decent man. You know, we can't argue with that. Clark does <laughs> not fall into that category. But it is amazing how how these arguments fly uh, uh, against Clark and his decision on the and the breakout and the fall of Rome fly in the face of hard evidence. <laughs> and you know, you can say this till you're blue in the face. It's it's amazing <laughs> that, that that people just don't accept it. You know, it's, it's sort of like the sort of kind of new truth in in kind of sort of Trumpian politics or something. I mean, you can say what you yeah, like. but that, No, it is a conspiracy. That... No, it is a conspiracy. Yes, it is a conspiracy. I mean. There, there is say? a
0: saying in 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 our our world of history, which no doubt the listeners don't want to hear, but you you have to tell people to a certain extent what they want to hear, and that Clark was a far better commander than history has allowed him up till now. That that's that's a difficult one to pull off, but you're absolutely right to give it a go if the evidence points in that direction. So you well, know, it's going to be fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to be fascinated to see the the results of all of this and, and they will, uh, you know, so if, if the listeners can wait until September, they're going to have a chance to read in, in much more detail what we've been discussing for themselves in what is t- entitled uh, Monte Casino 44, but it's taking the story, as you've just explained, James, all the way up to the fall of Rome. Great stuff. Okay, I'm not going to take any more of your time. In a word, uh, yes or no, was the Anzio operation worth it? You've already sort of answered this, but just give us the brief version. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Th- thanks so much, Jamie. That was brilliant. Love that.
1: All right. Nice to see you, all. <laughs>
0: Well, that was a fascinating chat, wasn't it? Got a little bit heated towards the end, but, you know, we'll have to read James's book to get the final detail of his defence of Clark, uh, but it's all fascinating stuff, isn't it? Do keep the questions coming in for Battleground 44 to our email address, podbattleground at gmail.com, and do join us on Friday when Patrick will be back and we'll be discussing the latest news from Ukraine, Gaza, and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.